Hey, Jeff Johnston here. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Have a very exciting guest I just recently met on social media, and um, I was really attracted to her projects and her passion and what she's doing for specifically, and I'm going to have her talk about this in more detail, but her uh, documentary that she did that I was able to watch, which I really, really suggest all my listeners and followers, um, not just follow uh, Deborah on social media, but get a chance to catch this video or this um, documentary. So Deborah Goncher Vinnick, sorry, I want to skip the N in Goncher. <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, but, I've heard uh, my name um, mispronounced so many ways from <laughs> Ganja to um, yeah. <laughs> Gunchi to, I mean, um, so I, I doubt that there is a uh, mispronunciation that's going to upset me or bother me at all at this point. You've heard it yes. and seen it all, but uh, I'm honored to have you on the show. I'm really excited. This is a, a different type of show because um, of what you do and you're in the documentary right. business um, and you and your husband, yes. right? Yep. And um, <clears throat> you do all sorts of documentaries, but why don't you talk a little bit about your most recent project and why it seems like uh, is kind of the one that you should be most proud of. Is that be correct? Well, let me say this. Um this is our 21st documentary and to try to, uh, yeah. So to say it's your most proud of wouldn't be fair. <laughs> right. It's like, um, anyone who has maybe most impactful. anyone who has children, um, whether they're fur children or other kinds of children or plants, um, you, you love each one of them for its own sure. very special reasons. And I mean that each one, but there's no doubt that over 21 documentaries, um, um, the subject matter that we've chosen really you know, in the last, you know, I'd say five or six years became ever more, you know, I chose it because of its importance, but also of its importance to me. So, you know, a number of mm. years ago, I did a documentary called Beauty of Their Dreams, which was on girls' education. And I am so aware of what my education did for me. I mean, I, I was a child mm -hmm. that was uh, very badly physically abused. And um, I remember mm -hmm. as a child just thinking, <clears throat> How do I ever get at, you know, when you're a kid, you, you can never imagine that things are going to be better. It's you're living that right. life. And I just thought, how can I, how am I ever going to get out? And the only, um, I'm not saying I was that smart to figure it out like this, but I must have known that education was going to be my answer. And so, um, you know, I went on and I went to college and graduate school and I did a PhD and, um, I'm very, very conscious of, of the importance of education and how education can help girls around the world. So we're not just talking about girls in the United States. We really shot around the world. And that was followed by a two-part series on um, immigration and refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and hmm. there was so much information that I wanted to share. It became two parts. And that kind of mirrors what happened with this most recent documentary. I started it, I'm going to say it's three and a half, four years ago already. Um, uh, although mm, it wow. feels like I've been doing it for the last 10 years. <laughs> um, right. And we started before the pandemic. 
Um, and I was really responding to the constant deaths I saw around me. Um, people I knew, people I knew through other people, people I heard about. Um, and, and I was really struck by the lack of conversation about women. So I do have a proclivity to look at situations and, and, and at least four or five other of my 21 documentaries have focused on women. And, and about Mm -hmm. four years ago, I, I was listening to all the numbers and the deaths related to opioids. And I just didn't seem to hear anything about women. I thought, Hmm. wow, are women not using any opioids? Um, Because there, there wasn't any mention and I started researching it. And I, I have to tell you, I have a, um, a friend that I used to work with that I did not know he was doing massive amounts of pills. And he was at the university. He left because of all of these things. And um, he's been in recovery. And I, I really wanted to use him in this documentary, but I made the decision to focus on women because... yeah. I don't think that there there's never has been a focus on women in this way. And once you open that door and you bring in some men, then all of a sudden it opens up more, you know, taken away from, and, and I get it there. You could make a documentary on every topic. So have one real zeroed in on women in the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, I, I, I watched the documentary and, you know, obviously, you know, my, my son, our son died from uh, overdose, um, my wife, though, was drug into the abyss from his death. So indirectly, the uh, opioid epidemic, um, you know, pulled her in. But I will say when she, when she passed away, you know, she battled alcohol, but she also had lots of prescription pills by her side as well. And I don't feel bad sharing this story because A, she's not here and B, I think it helps other people, especially women who are struggling with grief. Uh, it doesn't have to be loss of a trial, a child. It could be trauma, maybe sexual abuse when they were a child or whatever. And, um, you know, over medicating, you know, whether it's, you know, or self-medicating, I guess is the term they use, whatever your poison is to, you know, mask that pain, whatever you're trying to run from can have dire consequences. And, I often think to myself that had my wife, you know, been able to become sober and, you know, abstain from prescription pills, maybe she'd still be here today. You know, um, you know, alcohol was what was under death certificate, but grief and pain and suffering contributed and you can't put that on a death certificate. So, I guess as a documentary individual that you are document document documentary producer, um, I applaud you for bringing this issue to the forefront through your documentary. And hopefully, hopefully we can have more documentaries in this context. And obviously one of the reasons why you and I are talking is I'm working on it or trying to work on a documentary myself on a bigger issue. Um, you know, so I really think it's great what you're doing. Um, I'd like to know more about your other documentaries and what did you learn from doing your documentary? Like what's the main few takeaways that you had that when you got done, you said, wow, 
you know, I really didn't think that this documentary would move me in this way, but this is the way it impacted me. Well, did you have a moment well, like that? What what happened? And it's interesting that I brought up the documentaries before before this. What happened is that um, there was so much to talk about. I mean, there was so yeah. much so that I'm glad that we're going to be dividing it into two one hours that will be airing on ABC next year because there's so much. Where do you start? The fact of the matter is that women, um, the percentages, you know, people can play with numbers, but let's just say an overwhelming percent of p women who um, succumb to this disease and in terms of, of, of using opioids um, have suffered some trauma, uh, whether it's childhood trauma, yeah. whether it's um, yep. emotional trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma. Right. Um, the list goes on and on. Um, so, you know, th there's all of this that I wanted to talk about. There's issues that these drugs weren't even trial or clinically tested on women. So think about this, that it wasn't until 1993 were there any trials that women were involved with. Mm. So any drug you can think of be, that came out That's before crazy. 1993 was never tested on women. That I wonder what, what, that's mind-boggling. What would be the basis? Yeah, what well, would be the basis um, for that? Somebody said that men just thought of women as being small men. That all it was, you know, was just like a small mm. version of men. Men, and that clearly, from a physiological, you know, perspective, oh, from yeah. a thousand different perspectives. But I have to think. Is, don't you think that's the minority of men? I mean, well. I think that uh, up to, <laughs> or maybe the majority of people in those areas. Well, I think that up to <laughs> but most men that I know, point, uh, it was clearly the yeah. majority, and they were the ones that were in control of. And, yeah. and there was some certainly there was some residual elements of um, concern about pregnant women and drugs that right. would, you know, was a throwback to um, whatever that uh, drug that I can't think of. That was, was disastrous for, but that's not just because you don't want um, to do a trial on women who perhaps are pregnant. That doesn't mean you cu cut out, which is what they did. That you know there were no testing right. on any women. So I thought that that was yeah. you know really incredible and has long term repercussions. So some of the things that medications that are taken in recovery actually weren't tested um, um, on hmm. women. Um, you know, you look at the dates that they came out and they were approved, they're way before 1993. I thought um, things that I still, even in two hours, I still couldn't address, um, Narcan and why Narcan isn't in every single building on every single college campus, every Walmart, every synagogue, every church, mosque. It's criminal. Right. It's criminal. It is, it is because um, I just had Ryan Hampton on my podcast, um, actually just today, and uh, it'll post later like yours will. And we navigated through that. Ryan's one of the top recovery advocates in the country. And he has, you know, his life has been saved by Narcan. So he's a big advocate in all things treatment or say harm reduction based. But um, yeah, I guess watching your documentary again as a male in Iowa, I was very naive to the abandonment possibly 
I guess it's the word I can think of from the, you know, medical profession and those people that are, you know, working with those in treatment and recovery for, for women. And I keep going back and the only, the only, um, evidence I have is what I went through with my wife. You know, I'm, I'm not a practicing clinician. I don't have clients. So the only, only lens I can view this from is as a husband dealing with this with my wife. And, um, you know, I, I could say there's, there's a chance that she slipped through the cracks, you know, um, that even in her alcohol abuse early on, most of the, uh, people that when I visited the facility, most weren't more male. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it, it certainly is something that begs conversation. I mean, it deserves to have these conversations of why society looks at, you know, it shouldn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, male or female, young or old, um, addiction, substance use, distress, trauma, suffering, pain. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. And based on that, we should have the solutions not discriminate as well. Well, I think one of the things that we try to do with the documentary is that you see stories from really across the board. So there are women who are in their late 60s who who were prescribed fentanyl mm. patches and have been on them for 15 years. Um, you mm -hmm. know, you have um, Native American women who have their own sorrows and and difficulties accessing um, medication assisted treatment and and recovery units. You have African American women and and the um, Kay who is in in this documentary talks about what it was like for her to to get treatment and and she used opioids for so long for ten, over 10 years that she lost her hearing in both ears which is really yeah. uh, you know um I, I spent a lot of time looking that up because like her i had never heard of that um and certainly it is um very unusual especially to lose hearing in both ears but she did um and yeah. there's all of these things and and a lot of it has to, you know, be laid at the foot of genetics, as Marv Seppler says, you know, um, there people have it's in your genes. People have a genetic propensity for it. Um, and so if you put all these elements together, if you put abuse and then you put a doctor who for your wisdom tooth extraction mm -hmm. gave you some crazy amount of pills like 30 or 40 yeah. pills and you start taking and then after a week and a half you, your tooth doesn't hurt but man you feel a little not good yeah if you're not taking right. those pills so you continue on and then it you know a month later it's too late well, it seems like based on the statistics that treatment works better for women than it does men men have a higher relapse rate coming out of treatment after they go through after detox and so forth. Um, it seems that men relapse more, more frequently. Um, and so if we can get more women with good quality, uh, you know, rehab and, and recovery services, you know, the statistics say that, you know, women will probably come out of it better, at least have less relapse. Um, so that, I mean, that, that's favorable. That's, but that's um, a big, if, know. if we could get, this uh, <laughs> <Wishful> <laughs> yeah because thinking. i think one of the things that you know i came away from 
was was really thinking, where is the continuity of care? Okay, so somebody goes into rehab, they have 30 days, maybe they even do 90 days, and then they're right. out. And what is the plan? And who's support? How are they being supported? Or are they literally, okay, you're good to go? I think it's the latter. And I think that's for both yeah, men and women. Absolutely. Um, again, I don't, I don't know. I've never been in rehab myself, but um, having a son and my wife in rehab, both of them, um, and my son got out of prison. He was just kind of like thrown to the, thrown to society. You know, there wasn't a bridge there. And I think, I think we owe it. If we're going to go that far, it's like quitting a hundred feet from the finish line. It's like, we're getting him right there. We do all this money and time and effort to get him in through detox. Now they're, you know, going to treatment, we get him out. And then it's like, all right, you should be on your own. Well, it's lifelong. I mean, that's the thing I was talking to Ryan about. And a lot of people I talk with is, this misnomer that or misunderstanding that, you know, recovery is like, um, like a destination, you know, like it's, um, like there's an end date and your last breath is probably the end date in recovery. When you're in recovery, it's lifelong, it's forever. Um, you know, and whether it's, you know, whether it's genetics or not, I spent some time in this in my book because early in my journey, I got really, really, into some heated debates about disease versus choice. Um, about, you know, if you're predetermined to be an alcoholic, that doesn't mean I'll take it back. If you have the predisposition, it doesn't mean you're predetermined. Right. So, so you could have the gene to have to drink or not, not necessarily that, but once you do drink, you can't quit. So it has to be activated biologically somehow through like your first drink. But I still think, I still think there's a lot of opportunities along that spectrum between never drinking and being in rehab that, that people can make better choices along the way. And so I vacillate between, well, no, I don't vacillate. I clearly say it's, it's disease and choice. It's nature and nurture. And we spend too much time on the, or like, is it nature or nurture? I quit cold Turkey. I don't know if I have alcoholism in my family because one generation ago, they didn't talk about this stuff. So I could say, oh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Um, we just never talked about that stuff. Today, we do a lot more open about that. Um, but I know people that come from alcoholic parents and they've been able to quit cold turkey. So, and believe it or not, there's a lot more of those people out there than we get credit for. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that the majority of people that are in recovery struggle immensely every day. And there's a lot of us out there that don't. Right. But, but I do um, think, um, because I would, I, it, it would be remiss of me to talk about alcohol because I've really focused on opioids. And I think there is a distinction point. between yeah. alcohol right. and opioids. And I think that what, yeah, you're what exactly we know right. about opioids is there is a, literal physiological rewiring of the brain. Um, yeah, which, yeah which good point. I'm not aware of happens um, with alcoholism. I, listen. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't think it does. I, I'm happy you brought that distinction up because I got a little bit distracted there on what my point was without thinking about the difference between those two, um, you know, type of, of addictions. Um, like myself, I was an alcoholic, but I never did drugs. So, my abstinence isn't from, you know, I'm not in recovery from drugs. I'm in recovery from right. alcohol. 
So whereas a lot of people like my wife had had both and my son did too. My son had the alcohol and the drug problem. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I guess in regards to how we can actually, so documentaries are great. I think they expose a lot of issues. How do we fix the problem? How, how do we get under the hood and get this thing to start helping the people that really need it in regards to treatment and getting uh, people to get their lives back in order? Now that you've exposed this problem, what's the solution? So I, I want to, I, I'm going to come back to that. Uh, but yeah. I want to just address something else that you said, which is really so on my mind recently. Also, this idea that we have of incarcerating um, someone who has mm. perhaps um, some sort of substance use disorder, you know, primarily I'm talking about opioid use disorder, and then having them come out of jail, incarceration, and as you said, and just going, there you go, there's a bus, get on yeah. the bus, yeah. is is yeah. complete lunacy. And I, I almost think that if anyone from an you know from outer space would look at this, they would they would just be going, are these people how it, it makes where's where, the humanity? Where's the humanity <laughs> and where's the logic? Yeah. Why would anyone think right. that just because you have gotten it out of your system, perhaps in a, you know, and you detox, that means that you, you get on a bus and go back to your life. And yeah. it, I mean, that just really makes no sense. So, well, and that was what I did, Deborah, uh, as a dad with no lived experience. When my son got out of prison, I thought that was his rehab. You know, I, I didn't uh, now, if I just, could go back with what I know now. He may still not be here, but I would have been able to been a lot better support for him. Uh, and that I can't play regret and guilt. I can take the knowledge I have now from looking hindsight and I can take that right. forward. And that's why I did the tour this summer. That's why I did my book. That's why I do my podcasts. That's why I'm doing the expo. I do the radio show. It's like, I learned a lot from my errors I made or my being naive or overconfident. Um, there's so many words I could explain where I, you know, I just wish I knew what I know now. I mean, I was all for prison being his rehab. I said, Seth, you look great, son. I'm happy you went to prison. I, I'm not happy you got out early, but I'm happy you're out. Um, we went to Dick's sporting good, loaded up a couple duffel bags full of clothes, went to the store, loaded up on some food. And he sat in my driveway and thought he was coming home. I said, no, you can't move back in the house. That, that ship has sailed. You got two little brothers, 13 and 15. Your mom's all stressed out. I wouldn't let him back in the house. And he was dead within less than two months. And I would do the same thing over again. I had to protect the integrity of my family. And it was at his expense, at least at the time, I thought just his expense of living with us. I couldn't bring that toxic. I, I couldn't bring it back into the house, even though I knew he was sober. I didn't trust that he'd stay sober. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do wonder if that was something I probably should have had him move in. But then when he did, that's the problem with this, this addiction and the substance use and the mental health problem we have in this country. The collateral damage is just not talked about enough. 
the devastation and destruction it causes on families. You don't even have to die. It causes so many problems in families. Right, but but now, and, um, I mean, now obviously your your hope or your agenda is that somebody listening to, oh it, yeah, you know, takes these words not only to heart but to heart and soul, man, and it mm-hmm. gets into a place where they have to put, you know, their whatever aside and say, listen, I've got to be able to learn from this guy. This guy's has this experience he he knows you know so so there's got to be a way of of balancing two things how do you protect your 13 and 15 year old and how do you support with a continuity of care yeah yep that's that enabling and tough love balancing act and you know there's there's millions of people every single day just in the united states that are having those intimate conversations with loved ones Right now, as you and I are taping this podcast, think of all the husband and wives and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters that are having these tough conversations right now at this moment. And some of these are going to end horrifically like mine did. And some won't. Some will be the next success stories that everyone anoints as this is the right way to do treatment. And then again, (laughs) there's no template, Deborah, you know that there's no boilerplate that says, Okay, here's page seven. This is right. what you do when when your wife gets out of rehab. This is what you do. It's just like, I still, as an advocate, I still think we just make up stuff as we go. Um, and that's uh, that's sad that it's, our society doesn't have the resources and the and the facilities to have people be able to just go to for help because it's like we've we all stigmatized. kind of our think own. about the stigma i mean yeah really i mean years and years and years ago it was leprosy right wasn't like oh my mm, yeah but yep. n- it's right. the modern day leprosy nobody well hiv yeah, too same thing with absolutely. hiv nobody yep. wanted to say that right. you know they they had lost a child to hiv oh my goodness or you and you couldn't be in the same room with someone with HIV because right. it was contagious. You know that's what people just believed these things, and you're right; it perpetuates the the, the stigma and and the discrimination that goes with it. But so, in your documentaries, what other projects are close to your heart? What what's kind of interest that you're going to be working on here? So it's and I, you know, I said I was going to come back to the question you asked me, and I, I did. Oh yeah, now, you have a better memory. No, than I, I do. know that I was supposed to, but I'm not sure what that the question was. So it's not. I forgot to. <laughs> um, Don't worry about it. I so you know I think one of the things that's absolutely you know we don't take into, we, we don't look at is, as you say, the collateral damage. So think of, right. um, think, of think of the mother who is, um, has children and um, gets, starts back in active addiction and then gets pregnant. And then there's this whole, she's like, what does she do? What does she do with her child? She's afraid if she doesn't get going to recovery, they're going to take away her child. But if she does, they're going to know, and then they're going to take away her child. And then think of that mm-hmm. child, because if the child, if the mother and child are separated, what kind of trauma is that for the child? So now right. we're perpetuating 
this hurt, this this hurt of the soul, generation by generation by generation, and it's, it's, a, cycle. it's a horrible cycle that. Um, oh, I know what the question was, but it's a horrible cycle that we can't break unless we put some of the money. So this is what I want to see. Lots of monies. Mm. Everyone hears about the opioid settlement litigation monies, billions and billions of dollars. Well, what's going to happen with the money? And my my raison d'etre, my agenda for this film is to say to people who see this film, you need to call your local official, your local elected official, because every state is going to get some of these settlements, every state. Mm -hmm. Now, each state's going to decide, is it going to go to the state or is it going to go to the state and counties? Is it going to go to the state, counties and a, and a foundation? But there's going to be gobs and gobs of money. And women need to get the resources to, mm -hmm. as you said, if we know that they do better, then how can we right. not be putting money and making those resources available to them, not only for the detox, but for Medicaid assisted treatment, for mental health services, for continuity huge, of huge. care. So when they get out, yep. even it's not like, well, you've had a month of therapy, you're good to go. Yeah. That's not gonna yep. that's not gonna cut it. I'm happy you brought up the mental health because all this falls of under course. mental health. I mean Think I always paint the picture for people that are struggling with these terms being interchangeable. Mental health's the wheel, and the spoke is addiction, substance abuse, grief, trauma, anxiety, suicidal ideation, you know, depression. Those are all spokes in the wheel, and we as a society go after the spokes. We we want to fix the spokes, even though the wheel is flat. And so, I think we need to focus uh, on these individual spokes. Don't get me wrong, but. We can't lose focus that all these are co-occurring and it's very difficult to be a drug addict and not have some other issues in your life like depression, right. anxiety. Maybe you were molested as a child. I mean, th there's, there's all these co-occurring things that I think, and I wrote about this, um, a couple of months ago, I wrote a blog called the mental health whack-a-mole dilemma because we look at mental health as a, a game of whack-a-mole. It's like we chase one thing, put it out, but I think if a documentary could show this as a mental health epidemic, and that's what we were with, so we're in the, we're in the cusp of a mental health epidemic, a crisis of epic proportions, I like to say. Um, and then it just keeps, I keep going back to, okay, great, Jeff, you've identified the problem. Yep. We're all, we're all messed up. We all have issues. How do we fix it? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm wired to focus on solutions. That's, you know, I, I, maybe that's just the way I've always been my whole life is that I think it's easy to find the, the problem to identify the problem. Sometimes it's easier than some other problems, but I think the solutions is where we all really have a hard time. You mentioned things just like Narcan. There's people that are against Narcan. There's people that are the new one. That's now eight milligrams. Uh, um, Clox, Cloxada, Cloxoda, yeah. Cloxada, I think. Um, you know, people are, are now coming out with ways they don't like that. And it's like, you know, I think we need to start really looking at saving lives first and then worry about everything else after that. But, but you, you know? have to go back to stigma because if you don't real, if, you know, people who have 
opioid use disorder are so stigmatized that a lot of people don't really think their lives are worth saving. And you know, that's yeah. true. Well, I, I'll tell you what's, what's, and I'm just going to say this and I don't, I don't mean to anybody that is, follows me that likes me. I hope this doesn't hurt their feelings or make them mad, but, um, I can say that when people post things about their deceased child, and let's say it's cancer, car wreck, um, you know, something that, uh, drowning or something. And then I post something about Seth overdosed. There is an immediate difference in perception and I get it. I'm not trying to say, I, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't say, well, yeah, the kid who died in a car wreck, that's more tragic than what your son did. Because I've even said that sometimes that what happened to me was unfortunate, not tragic. But at the end of the day, it's still death. And, you know, it's still extremely, you know, disruptive to the family. Well, wait a second. I have to stop you because I I disagree. Why is the, the person who died in the car wreck more tragic than Seth? And I'll give you another, and I'll give you another analogy. Which one is more tragic? Dying from an opioid use disorder and, and an overdose or dying from cancer because they're both diseases. So mm-hmm. are we going to start ranking? Oh, cancer is higher up on my weeping than opioid. Right. Use- they're both diseases. And we do rank. That's, That's the problem. Uh, we do. Um, there's no question we do. Or Narcan would be out there on every street corner. Um, you know, um, you know, um, all the different medically assisted treatment programs would be acceptable. Right. I mean, we'd have fentanyl test right. strips everywhere, um, but we don't. Iowa's in a state where it's still legal, <laughs> you know, which is mind boggling to me. Right, um, because you you so, can't have a you can't have any kind of um, public facility without having a fire extinguisher, right? You you hmm. you know that there's a fi- fire fire How right. is it possible? Or why shouldn't it be that there is a Narcan exactly where there's a fire extinguisher? A fire extinguisher is there to save lives, put out fire by say and save lives. That's what Narcan is will save a life. We know that. There's no doubt about that. There's no discussion about that. Yeah, and the concerns people have is what happens if I have asthma or what happens if I have and I'm like, you know, there's not been any evidence or any clinical proof that Narcan has any downside, um, other than if too much is given, um, it, it, the, the recovery from that takes longer is the kind of the, the, the detox from it in a way, if you got too much of it, I hate that word associated with Narcan, but coming down from the Narcan could be more severe. Um, so yeah, but let's, let's, let's balance this. Coming, yeah, right. coming down, Life right? Or death or exactly. coming down. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I get it. You're preaching to the choir. I know I wanted to touch base with you a little bit about some future projects. Are you going to stay on the theme of of opioids and addiction in women, uh, or are you going to try a different angle on some some other topic? Well, okay. So I feel like I there were it was impossible to cover all the things that. I want to. So I talk about Narcan, but I don't talk about it for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. There's just, you know, um, I don't talk about what I think is 
and outrageousness, which is that um, in half of the states in the country, medications that women are on when they are incarcerated are are not given to mm. them. I don't know how that actually is. You know, I'm going to use a word. I'm not a lawyer, but legal or certainly it's not humane. If you have diabetes and you go into um, a prison situation, diabetes medication is part of what you would get across this country. How is it that hmm. half the states are going to deny you your Medicaid assisted treatment? How is that? You know, that's I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so wow. that's. So I do want to do that. Um, I There's a documentary that I wanted to do for a long time since one of our first documentary, which is about water, because um, we did a documentary mm. in Africa. It was about the conversion of a Ugandan group called the Abiyudaya to Judaism. And we were in mm. Uganda and... Um, all, all anyone thought about a lot of the day was water. So when we would leave the tribe we were with, they would pack us up with, um, you know, plastic, large plastic gas uh, containers that didn't have a top. They we stuck a banana. We would mm. go get water for them, bring it back before we went to the mm. hotel. So water has been on my mind. And then I may actually... Um, do a, a documentary which would be very different but is on something that i've been talking about and i have a website about for a lot of years which is about gratitude um so yeah, you know i remember you saying um, that. we started a website years and years ago and before we started it i i had this practice where i would stop at 2 30 every day my running watch would go off and that would remind me to stop and and look around and just think about how much I had to be thankful for. Um, we talked about that. Yeah. I remember. And it went on to now it's on my phone and we start a website and we, <laughs> every person I interview, I always ask them about gratitude and, you know, I'm always really clear about this. I was talking about this with, um, you know, I'm speaking at Hazelton, uh, Betty Ford. I was talking to them yeah. about this because I'm really clear. I'm not in a good mood. Let's make it clear. I'm not in a good mood every day. I'm in, I have a, a good many days. I'm in a foul mood, not just a bad mood, <laughs> yeah. a foul mood. And I can't understand yeah. how everyone is blah, blah, blah. But at 2.30, it's a... For me, it's a time to reset and I just go, yeah, I can't stand that person, that person, you know, and a list. But at 2.30, I take a breath and I go, oh, my God, I love chocolate malted milk balls more <laughs> than I can tell you. And I have a husband I adore. And he gets on my nerves, please. Um, and cats. Of course. But... I am, you know, I, I'm always thinking about it. And then I go oh, back to the rest of the day and I'm still annoyed. Please, you know, I, I keep on saying to people, it's not like yeah. it's this magic pill. I go, oh, I'm grateful. And then right. I'm in a good mood for the rest of the day. No, but it kind of reminds me, yeah, things can be really 
blank. I know this is probably a not an R-rated, so not nice. But right. but there is so much. If you look, if you take a moment to be grateful for. It's always there and it's a recalibration. Yes, that's, that's what it exactly. is. That's exactly perfect. And yeah, it is. And it's like, I think one of the issues that, um, and I wouldn't say especially kids, but I think this goes for all humans is a set of a, a couple things. One is expectations is that their expectations are out of whack. So in other words, kids live in this game society where they can buy another life and they can live in this fantasy with zero consequences other than the game being over and they lose. Whereas then they get into the real world and they have to actually look people in the eye and they got to make tough decisions and they got, you know, the consequences come from the choices that they make. And a lot of kids have a hard time with that. So expectations should be realistic. They should be attainable. So you should be able to have goals and stuff that you can achieve and, and they should be, um, something, uh, fair, you know, um, I think a lot of kids do too much comparison and adults are too, you know, if I see a podcast I like, I think to myself, why can't that be me? Why can't I do a better podcast or somebody doing something on LinkedIn? That's very creative with advocacy. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? And so I think expectations is like the one big thing out there that we need to do a better job getting people to understand that you need to have realistic exp and de death's probably the easiest one to explain, Deborah. When I do my workshops, it's it's death. And the way I way I explain it is we all know it's coming. Nobody that you know ever got away from it, you know, ahead of you. It doesn't always happen at a convenient time and it rarely happens in the right order. Yet we all know it's coming, but with this incredible knowledge and wisdom that we have, when it happens to us, we act like it wasn't supposed to happen, like it's supposed to be somebody else. And so death is the clearest understanding of expectations. I'm not saying wake up and expect to die. We won't expect to live, but when it happens, it happens. And sometimes there's not a damn thing you can do about it. The second is preparation. You know, what are you doing every day to prepare yourself for, I like to say, the, the marathon of life. And so expectation and preparation are two really big, like, pillars of what we're trying to talk to people about. Um, you know, and again, I'm not sure where I got off on that, but I think for people to work with their mental health, um, the more they can be aware of self-assessing what they're going through be more in control of their own decisions. You know, like Ryan said today, choose recovery choices, having choices in recovery instead of the government making the choice or the prison making the choice. You know, we all need to have options. The more, the better, but it gets too politicized. You know, it gets too agenda driven. And now it's going to be what $54 billion thrown out there in the yeah. settlement. You don't think people are going to be reaching oh, for that with their hands out that don't deserve to get a of penny course. of it? That's why I want people to see this film and then go make a call. Um, I'm going to add a third one to your list. You had a number of things about... Well, I do have a third one, but I'm going to hold it back and see if you got well, it right. <laughs> I don't know if I get it right. I'm just going to add one more. I think an important thing is a time frame. So when we talk about expectations, um, I think something that's 
devastating is these open-ended time frames. So I'm going to give you an mm. example. So yeah. when at some point many many years ago, um, I was doing I was working on my PhD and I I wanted it done. I you know I wanted I wanted to graduate at a certain time, but it took time to do. At the same time, mm. I decided to run a marathon. I decided it in oh, January. Wow. And my first marathon, I ran that October. And I was so joyous because I had set up this thing. It wasn't lingering for years. I had yeah. set up a goal. That's awesome. And I achieved it in October. Whereas, you know, my PhD, I did actually fairly quickly, but it wasn't in nine months. I can tell you that much. Um, and yeah. the joy I had from that first marathon um, was just unbelievable. I mean, it was really I unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I I just kept on saying to people, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. And this was before marathons were so in. Um, I, 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 yeah. I just couldn't believe I had done well, it. I've never ran one, so you're ahead of me. I, I, I ran a number of them, and none of them gave me the same thrill hmm. um, as that first one, which was just inconceivable that I that I had done it. Um, but the time frame. And you prepared for I did, it, too. I did, but I had an end goal. It wasn't like I was going to be doing this for years and years to come, I don't know. God bless the, the people who, you know, athletes who train for years and years to be in the Olympics. I don't know if I could have, you know, just endlessly had an expectation back to the idea of expectations. And, you know, I had an expectation and then I did it and then I could move on. Um, yeah. And, and I think that is important. Otherwise we just, go maybe it maybe you know it kind of starts weighing you down can i still do it or maybe i should give up do i give up do i you know you're just yeah. caught in this quandary of like when when does an expectation start being like handcuffs yeah i i completely can relate to that because my advocacy for mental health is at times you know overwhelming it's it's I have friends that worry about me, you know, as that this is what I do when I get up in the morning, I do this all day. I think about it when I sleep and I'd like to say it's hard. It's easy for me to disconnect, but it's hard for me to disconnect because I get such a reward out of it. Like you did running in that marathon. And I feel like that every day and, but burnouts very right. likely, you know, very likely. The third thing that I always talk to people about and get your thoughts on this is what I call evolution. And that's the evolution of self. And that's your, your progress, your progression as a human and looking back in your life, not in the context of pain and suffering, but in the context of learning and saying, this happened to me. It happened for me, not to me, you know? And it takes a lot of practice. It took me 50, I'm 56 now. So it took me like 52 years to get where I could start looking at any event in my life as opportunistic and not a curse or a punishment or bad luck. 
And um, I think for people in addiction and substance use, distress and mental health, depression, things like that, it's easy not to look at life that way. It's easy to look at life as why me instead of why not me. Well, you know, it's interesting. The why not me is a feeling I always had. I always, when I was younger, I always thought, why wouldn't my plane crash? Everyone thinks their plane won't crash. You know, um, you know, I remember I was uh, dating a guy at Columbia University and um, I was doing, you know, kind of risque things, meaning walking along alone as a woman at night. Why, why not me? You know, what, how long can everybody go on saying, you know, why me? You know, somebody's got to be that number. Somebody's got to be on that plane yeah. that goes down. Wow. Um, that's a, that's a odd way to look at things, you know? Um, I have to ask, uh, what's the name of the cat making that noise? Oh, that, that one's Minnie, Minnie and her brother, Minnie, Minnie and her brother Cooper. I have Minnie and Cooper and Barnes and Noble and, um, <laughs> and Smidget and Minnie announces that she has the ball. She wants me to know that. So I'm naively thinking I'm going to be able to train her. So I even have some yummies. <laughs> so if she brings me the ball, she'll get some yummies. That's that's the All idea. Right, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. It's just popped yeah. in my head. And that's what happens with attention. That's the beauty of attention deficit. Um, do cats and dogs, let's just stick there. Or maybe we could say animals. But do they have a soul? Yes. No hesitation. How about like a deer or a rabbit? Or I mean, is there is there a line where you draw and say, well, that now all of a sudden a fish doesn't, you know, I mean, I guess, where do you draw the line on that? Because I agree with you. I think dogs and cats for sure do. I think anyone I I think anyone who's had a dog or a cat um, knows that First of all, their personalities, they have personalities. You know, oh, yeah, every, just like right. humans, distinctly Absolutely. different. Absolutely, there's no... Every dog uh, I've had has been different. You might be seeing one walking, I see. and that's Noble. Um, and yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, they, I love they, it. They are very distinctive. So why would we think that something that's so distinctive, like, you know, this one will go out, this one doesn't, this one will eat this, this one will eat that... This one, you know, walks all around my body. This, you know, um, I think they do have, uh, you know, souls. I think that you you ask a good question because do fish and do do cows and if and if you I know if you think that cows do I, have I, a soul, then you have the problem of if I know I know. And this is where I love this question. Why I waited till the very end because uh, I I'm. Uh, you know, I'm agnostic. I make no, no beef about that. I I've never believed in, I, I literally don't believe in the afterlife either, either, but that doesn't make me non-spiritual. I'm high. I'm just as spiritual as any religious person on the planet. Um, but I just define things like faith and all that differently. But when it comes to pets, it's like, I don't know what you call it. I don't know. I don't know how similar they are to us in the afterlife, but I'll tell you what, when I am in a fetal position crying, my dog Camus comes from anywhere and he is whiny and he puts his head on my neck and he licks my face. 
I have to push him away and say, I want to cry. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's like, I'm in the middle of a damn good cry. Get out of here. I got to be mean to my dog because he's here to right. help me. And, and he's saying I, to you, but I I've gotten arguments with uh, people. He's saying to you, don't cry. My dog has a Absolutely. soul. <laughs> you could believe in God or what? I don't care, but my dog has a soul. And my other dog could care less if I'm crying. He's got a soul too. He just doesn't show it right. the same way. So I, I had to ask that question because I saw your cat and my attention mm -hmm. deficit said, I want to ask Deborah about that. But yeah, I think people who are grieving, man, pets can be so damn helpful. Well, pets are, I mean, you know, pets have better um, instincts and, and have, have senses that we don't have or... And they don't judge. And they, our senses have got, maybe we had them, but they got dulled over time. But those yeah. pets pick it up. They, they know mm -hmm. it. I mean, you're weeping and your dog and your dog won't listen to you even when you're pushing no. away. Cause he knows, he I knows know. better than you do. He knows. He knows right. he can help me. You know. And I guess what just, you know, that's the hardest part about putting a pet down. Oh. I, I just freaking yeah. hate that. And it's, I put my cat down the day before my mom died. Um, and Opie was six, 16, I think, or 15. And Opie was, you know, Seth carried her around. My wife, you know, helped pick her, pick him out. And um, it's so traumatic to put an animal down. And so I think sometimes if you don't have children and, and um, you put a cat down or a dog that you're really close to, that that feeling can be just as impactful, just as so painful as someone who loses a child. And for people listening, are going to say, "Well, Jeff, no way." But yeah, I, absolutely. I really do. I yeah, especially if you don't have children, and these are your children. Um, I think people that lose pets, I mean, you got to watch out for them. Uh, people can go through the same stages of grief, you know, with but a pet. Isn't it, um, and that's why pets it, doesn't it come down to? And I know I don't want to take Marv Seppala's thunder on this but it's about love and and the love mm. you love that pet and that pet you know is is close to you in ways that other people just right. can't imagine and so when losing that pet is i can tell you we we have five cats now we had six and we we lost one we had a put bunky um uh, to sleep um, the beginning of 21 and Bunky was my mm. husband's doggy. <laughs> Bunky. Yeah. I like it that was name. for the word rambunctious. <laughs> That's how we come. Yeah. I like and it. Um, he followed this cat followed David every place. When David had his heart surgery, Bunky was laying mm -hmm. on his stomach where he shouldn't, but Bunky was there and, and David lost his mother um, about three months prior to Bunky and David said to me, you know what? You know, he, he loved his mother so much, but she was 93, God bless, and she had an amazing mm. life and she and she talked about it all the time. Bunky was, you know, an open wound in David's heart. There's just no doubt oh, about yeah. it. Um I know. You know. It, it's it's um you know when you buy one, you know. It, I know when I buy one, there's going to be a day, but you know, I got Opus's ashes are up there on my mantle next to my wife, next to my son, next to my mom. And you know, they become part of your family. And, um, 
I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a, a lightened way to end this, uh, because we got pretty deep into a lot of different things today and it's been close to an Absolutely. hour, which is, you know, doesn't feel like an hour, but <laughs> nor did our last <laughs> conversation. But yeah. Um, do you have anything that you would add to just wrap this up in regards to people out there that, you know, men or woman or child or adult that is struggling with, um, you know, mental health or substance use or, or opioid addiction, um, any words of wisdom or something you could say to them as they go into the holidays? Cause the holidays are a very tough time for people that have lost people too. Well, uh, one of the things that I, you know, one of my takeaways from the documentary is I, I would ask people who had used, um, pills or heroin, I, and I didn't include this for obvious reasons. I asked them, how did it make them feel? And mm -hmm. um, there were some kind of positive things, but most of the answers were about how it, how they just didn't want to feel and it numbed them and it took away their pain. Yeah. So it wasn't um, this right. kind of, oh, it makes me want to dance. It was, I didn't think, or I didn't feel or remember that I had been raped when I was five years old. And then again, and then again, it, it took it away. And so, so they were escaping yeah. rather than Correct. exploring, they were escaping. And so yeah. I think when we go to the holidays and we have this imagining that everyone's great family is gathered yep. around and nobody's family <laughs> yep. is like that. I mean, really nobody's. So, you know, I would say to people, um, first of all, I would say take even the second, even if you only have two minutes of thinking to yourself, I, I really don't want to do this anymore. Take those two minutes in between the next minute when you want to use again and take those two minutes mm -hmm. and, and make a call. Um, and get some help, just even those two minutes and, and just yeah. remember that, um, being numb is useful. There's no doubt, but being oh, yeah. alive is pretty darn good. Yeah. I mean, there's so many neat ways to comment on what you just said. I mean, I heard someone once say you're either busy living or busy dying and, that is true that every choice you make, you know, if you're in recovery and you decide to go get drunk, um, you know, that's not the busy living road, you know, and it probably won't kill you that day. And again, statistics say you do fall off the wagon a lot when you're going through recovery, but yeah, it's just trying to give people hope and inspiration. And that's, that's what your documentaries are and, about. And don't and, stay and don't stay alone because alone is a place yeah. where, you know, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic and say no good comes of it, but it's not, it's not find someone, find some place to go to help other people, yeah. not to help people. Don't, you don't want to help. I understand. Just find a friend no, and, it. and be with them. Cause my most terrifying moment in my entire life was last Christmas when I was alone, uh, not Christmas day, but during the break. And that's the only time I considered suicide last December. So I'm coming up on one well, year you, after all you, I've been you, through. You, you have an open, standing, and on a podcast invitation. At any point, come on over to my house. It's open <laughs> invitation. 
fortunately, every time I share that story, that invitation list grows. So I, I have, I have plenty of people that I can reach out to, but I, I, that's why I share the stories that I don't want to ever go back to that, to that day. And, um, I'm not trying to avoid less than I'm trying to prepare. I'm trying to prepare for moments where I have a weakness like that. And like you said, it becomes a strength, you know, and, uh, for people out there over the holidays, being alone is, is tough. And, um, like you said, um, let's make that extra call. Even if you're with your family and you feel good, think of that older person that just got widowed or, or widower or your aunt in the nursing home that cousins are all out of town. Just stop by or give them a call. And it may not mean the world to you. I hope it does, but it certainly means the world to whoever you're doing it to. And that's what we talked about last time, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, how, how, how all of our lives would be changed if we just took a moment to give someone a compliment that day, you know, if, if each, each one of us did that once yeah. a day, think of the 8 billion times that could be replicated. It's, it's, it's astronomical, the velocity that goodwill could, you know, and, and, you know, when, and you're on social media, so am I, and I, I comment and say nice things more than I get back right. at I, me. I, 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 I feel the and, same way. And I like that. I like that. And when I make a comment, like you make a post and I put a comment, I don't expect you to comment and say, Oh, Jeff, thanks a lot. Oh, by the way, your post was great too. It's like, eh, I know how that works. That's an echo chamber. It's like, I like to give out lots of compliments and it just makes me feel good. And when someone says something about my post, I, I like it, but I'm not fishing. You know, I'm not out there trying to get people to do that. And I think there's a, I don't know, there's something about altruism. There's something about doing something where you feel really good about it and you're not expecting anything back in return. It's like the perfect scenario in goodwill. Right. You know? But I want to say to people out there listening, you don't have to be altruistic. You don't have to even do anything good. Just don't be alone. Find a friend, a friend that you really believe when they say, come on over. Because we all have friends that yeah. say that. But when we do get down, we go, yeah, I don't want to go there. They don't really mean it. But you, we hopefully there's one person. That's all you need. One person to go. I know I can count on Joanne no matter what. I can get in the car and go to her house and be whatever kind of crazy. Well, I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, appreciate, you know, all the different areas we covered. Um, and I'm really hopeful and I'll do what I can to promote, you know, your, um, your documentary. So when does the documentary actually come so, out? So, um, you know, what, what we're doing now is we're um, doing screenings around the country um, but it will start airing, um, uh, in May, the part one will be airing on a sun start on Sunday, May 20th, and then it will be available on ABC stations throughout the country. And then it will mm -hmm. be part two will be in September. And then there'll be a 60 minute version on PBS, which will be, um, and it's called attention must be paid women lost in the opioid. Well, epidemic. I don't know that that title is for the feature film. It may change for the two part series. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't supposed no, to that's say okay. that. <laughs> um, but, um, right now 
Anyway, that's a good title yes. if that's what it ends it, up being. Women <laughs> and the opioid crisis. And unfortunately, quite frankly, there is nothing else out there. No one is talking about it. It's, it's, there's a word for it in Yiddish. It's a shanda, which means, you know, it's a crime hmm. that women are invisible. And, and it can't well, be. let me do what I can to help promote this when it, when you need help, reach out to I me. So, will. and I'll talk to you too on some other things. So, well, well, appreciate Thank it very much, Deborah. Um, uh, it's always great talking to you. We, you and I know that we could talk about these issues literally um, through the night, but it's really been a pleasure. My yeah, pleasure. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show and uh, keep living undeterred. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.